The only time when things change is when people come up against the institution and say, that's not right, that's not just, and I'm going to lose to show you. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and I'm here with Melissa Wilson, who is in general just an awesome human being. Thank you, Melissa, so much for sharing your time with me. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. This has been in the works for many months, and so I'm glad that we can finally do this. So just before we get started, Melissa, could you just give me some of your bio, some of your history? Yeah, sure. Well, I just left higher ed. So I was a professor or instructor for the last two years at a small liberal arts um, college um, that was originally Presbyterian. Um, And before that, I taught there for another five years as I was working on my master's. So I've been in higher ed for about seven years. Mm, And where's your master's? My master's was from that same school. It's called Montreat College. And then I'm working on a second master's, so I didn't go on for a doctorate. I don't know why. <laughs> um, at Harvard University. Okay, wonderful. And yeah, it's been really great to be at Harvard and um, have my mind expanded over the last two years. I've been there. Absolutely. So, and yeah. and what is your field of study? I'm studying sustainability, and okay. specifically, I'm looking at how humans and nature interact with each other. I'm, my thesis is on national parks and the connection that we have to them. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so you, you're you very much kind of in, in the environmentalist and scientific field. field. Yep. That's great. And, and education, and, which was my first master's. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so also you were my biology professor at Montreal. That's I, right. I forgot, to, <laughs> I forgot to throw that out there in my, in my intro true. many eons ago. Right. You were my biology professor. How times have changed <laughs> since then. It's true. And so, but then you also have kind of this other parallel story, which is that of being a person of faith. Yep. And so you have this incredible journey that you've been on of being evangelical, now post-evangelical. And I'm just wondering if you could share some of that story, some of that process. I would love to. So I actually became an evangelical because I was searching for answers. Mm. So you're talking about the art of asking questions as part of sacred tension. So I'm a question asker. Yes. That's why I'm a great scientist Mm. as well. Mm -hmm. And many of our best scientist originally <laughs> by the way yeah. we uh we have a new kitten named wednesday and she is going to be making cameos in many episodes from here on out because she's very loud so if you hear meowing it's wednesday all right moving on <laughs> Do continue. so um some of our best scientists throughout history were people of faith and they were people that were asking questions in lots of different dimensions. And so when I was a child, I would ask both mathematical and scientific questions and sometimes I couldn't find the answer to them. So I'd come to like kind of an ending point, like what is the meaning of life? Well, I can't really answer that with science or math. Right. And so I became a person of faith or specifically at that time an evangelical because I wanted to have my questions answered. And 
the great thing about the evangelical church in that time in my life was that they had very specific answers. Yes. And I now, looking back, see those as box answers and not something that's as effective for me personally anymore Mm. because they are answers that work in what I would call a very clean-cut, cookie-cutter world, but they don't always work in the nitty-gritty gray world that most of us inhabit. Mm. They work great in a black-and-white world. Absolutely. But they don't work great in... living in color world and it's really interesting that you bring that up because to me i find that the answers that i was given as an evangelical especially about myself as a gay person Mm -hmm. worked really great in a theoretical setting sure you know they in general i find that they work wonderfully in theory but then when it comes down to practice, right. when it comes down to life and connection with other human beings, it's much more complicated. Is that, that the kind of thing you're talking about? It's exactly how I'm talking about. So I actually grew up in a family that was agnostic and atheist. So one parent was atheist, one person was agnostic. And what that did was actually allowed me to explore lots of different religions and faiths. And at that time, I was in Southern California, which is not a huge place of faith. It's not living (laughs) in the Bible Belt. Um, But so the people that were evangelical really knew what they believed, and they were very specific. And that was important to me when I was 16 years old or when I was 14 years old. Um, So I actually came to Christian college thinking, I need more of that. I need more of someone telling me this is what life's about because I wasn't actually getting that from my family of origin. Um, So it worked through Bible college, but I had some things that would come up like I had a homosexual friend, a guy, and I didn't know what to do with that because it was like, wait, but you're a Christian and you're homosexual, but you're not allowed to be homosexual. How does that work? <laughs> that simple theoretical <laughs> right. world was breaking down for you. Yeah. And so I didn't, I don't feel like I handled myself well in that situation. I was just kind of like, you have to choose one or the other. And then the more that I've gone through life, the more I've realized like, well, that's not really true because not everybody else like let's break it down for another example so um like with homosexuality evangelicals would say that's a lifestyle sin yes and when i look at that i think well all sin is a lifestyle sin right because we're all doing sin all the time yes (laughs) so like you wouldn't go to someone that's judgmental Right. Which a lot of evangelicals, I would say that's the sin of the evangelical church. Absolutely. We wouldn't go to them and be like, you need to stop judging people because that's a lifestyle sin. Right. But it is a lifestyle so, sin. So it was a breakdown of categories. It was a breakdown of boxes. Of yeah. Boxes. Of like this actually, like you said, it's theoretical and it doesn't really work. And yeah. so what did Jesus say that really worked? Well, he said, love God and love your neighbor. Absolutely. If I can live out those two things, I'm so happy. Yeah, absolutely. Like there is actually happiness and joy that come from loving God and loving your neighbor. Mm. And if we could keep it that simple, then I think the world really could experience change, which is what we saw Mother Teresa do. It's what we saw Martin Luther King Jr. do. Yes. And we forget that those people were followers of God. Yes. These people that were beautiful people that Mm. were doing good things in the world. Yes. They were actually believers. Yes. So I'm I'm really interested to hear about how this 
it, it, so it sounds like you've kind of been a questioner and a searcher for your entire life, a seeker yeah. your entire life. And, you know, even when you were within the evangelical world, you were still a seeker. Yep. And so I'm really interested to hear how all of this transpired in your most recent <laughs> experience at Montreat mm-hmm. College, yeah. if you're willing to talk about that on air. I would love to talk about yes. it on air. And I probably should give some background to it before we get there. Yeah. So something that happened to me that made my world be more gray was that I wasn't able to have a child. And I don't know the reason why, and my husband doesn't know the reason why. We've never gotten answers to that. So in the evangelical world, there's all this like, well, if you pray more, or if you're tithing, then God's going to bless you, or, you know, just wait your, you know, so-and-so waited until they were 90, and then they had a baby, and I'm like, really? (laughs) Sarah and Abraham, (laughs) they were in the hundreds. Once again, (laughs) theoretical world, not real life. Exactly. So we did what we saw Jesus doing, which was adopt an orphan, Mm. and I'm using the word orphan because my daughter was really... um, she was relinquished to the state, meaning that there was nobody there that was going to take her in. There was not a grandparent, a parent, there was nobody. When you're relinquished to the state, you have a whole history of stuff that's happened to you before that. So she was seven. So we took on someone that was had a lot of needs and a lot of abuse and neglect. Well, you would think because we're Christians – and because the churches that we were in, we went through three churches during this time, mm. that people would have you over for dinner. Right. And that people would invite her to their kids' birthday parties. Right. And that when she went to school, she would have Christian friends that talked to her. And when she went to Christian school, that you pay ten to $13,000 a year for, that people would talk to her. And that is not the case. Mm. And so it was a wound that went really deep because I was saying hey, I'm doing everything that you have taught me to do at the evangelical church. You've told me to love God, to love my neighbor, to adopt the orphan, to reach out, to be in the streets. And I'm doing that. And there's nobody there to support me. Yeah. And the reasons were... And your daughter. And my daughter. When I would say that back to people, say I said it to this Christian school that I was paying for her to go to, their point was, well, we don't know what kind of influence your child's going to be on ours. Because of her history. Background. Because of her background. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, this is the very stuff that Jesus came to talk to you about with the woman at the well, with the woman that broke the perfume bottle at his feet. Like, there are people that have hard backgrounds. And if we can't learn how to be among them and to be with them and love them in the midst of what happened to them, then we're not really being the church. Mm. So that was my first ding. Mm. And a very painful one. Yes. Extremely painful and extremely painful for my daughter. Mm. And so the first ding and going, what you're saying, church, works, but not in real life. When it does not work in the nitty gritty because you're not really living out the nitty gritty. And I think that's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Mm. So Judaism was happening for all of these years. People are trying to follow God, and Jesus kind of comes to them and say, says, like, you're missing it. Mm. You're really missing the core of what it means to follow God. And so I came to that same 
idea with the evangelical churches I was part of. And I, like I said, it was a part of three. So I felt like I gave it a good go, you know, and, and three from the time of 18 to 38. So 20 years. Goodness. So you really came up against that cognitive dissonance of, of here's what the church says and here's what the church actually does. Does, right. And that's a deeply painful encounter right. for a lot of us. Right. And so there was this, so I think you were asking about my Montreat College decisions and we, I want to talk all through that. But one of the things that happened with Montreat College was that they were asking me to make very specific theological statements. And many of those statements I felt like weren't helpful to the outsider. Absolutely. And so I had been the outsider. I just felt what my daughter felt like to be the outsider. And I just kind of thought through, I I can't do that. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I can't do it. So just to give some background, Montreat College is a small uh, liberal arts Christian college here in the mountains of North Carolina. It is where I went to college and... It is where Matt Langston, who provides the music for the show, and we had a long conversation about this for the show in the Nashville Statement series. To clarify some things for why I keep bringing up Montreat College on this podcast is I think Montreat College is a really good case study for what is going on in the wider evangelical world. And you I know, agree. Yeah, and so I think you and I and a lot of people in our community have experienced something with Montreat that is really indicative of what's going on all over the country. Yeah, so the um, Coalition for Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCU. Um, That's a mouthful, yeah. CCCU. <laughs> yes, it's horrible. <clears throat> There's over 100 colleges that are a part of it, and it's always been, hey, if you're a college of faith, you can be a part of it. So we might have Brethren Colleges and Presbyterian Colleges and Baptist Colleges and Episcopalian colleges and we're all together and we're people of faith and it's a place for those small universities to come together and say we not only look at academic disciplines but we also look at spiritual disciplines right well recently last year they asked for everyone that was a part of their coalition to make some very definitive faith statements so Montreat is one of hundreds of colleges I see. that began to make those faith statements. That, so it is a case study. That is illuminating for me because yeah. I didn't know that it was across the board. It's across the board. And two of the universities, and I cannot remember, one of them was a Quaker school and one was a Brethren school, both chose to leave this the coalition because yes. they did not believe all the faith statements. Yes. And they didn't want to argue about it because these are peacemaker type of yes uh, faith communities and and so these specific faith statements that mm -hmm. the coalition was asking you to make were from what i understand having to do with human sexuality yep sanctity of marriage sanctity of marriage sanctity of marriage and then sanctity of life were the two major ones that they were asking about our college brought it into more depth because they felt like it would be a good chance to kind of refine all the faith statements. Yes. And our college actually, though it was called a Christian university, actually was originally Presbyterian. Yes. And the Presbytery has has both conservatives and um, more liberal views, depending on where you live and which type of Presbytery you're a part of. So As Montreat has a lot always, of traditions at right. this point. Yeah. yeah. So Montreat had always embraced all of that. So yes. this was the first time for very conservative viewpoints on several issues to be the only thing 
that professors and instructors could believe, and staff members, I should say. Could be, so it became the litmus test of orthodoxy. It became the litmus test for true If you true were a Christian faith, or not. If you were a Christian so, or not. And that was actually said, like, these issues that we're putting in front of you, that we want you to agree with us are, on show that you are not a heretic. Mm. That it, you believe what God really said is true. Mm. And that was the moment when I realized I'm a heretic then by this definition. Yes. And am I okay with that? And at that time, and even today, a year later, I'm okay with it. Sure. I'm, I'd rather be a heretic. Yeah. Than... <laughs> Welcome to the club. So, <laughs> well, I... you're well, you're on this podcast, and right. I think if you show up on this podcast, you're automatically a heretic. Perfect. Well, and some great people throughout history were heretics, and that's one of the things I said was I I actually wrote for my own. I was telling you earlier, I kind of write a little bit for myself mm-hmm. and this journal entry I had, we have all become hypocrites, heretics, or liars. Yes. And so either the hypocrite is saying, hey, you don't, you shouldn't be doing that and I don't do that and is not, it's not necessarily really true. It's kind of in a judgy mindset. Mm. The heretic is saying like, man, I'm not really sure and I'm asking tons of questions and I'm going to go over here and kind of ask my questions because I'm not I'm not following with what you're saying. Right. And then the liar is like, oh, I have no problem with that at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. um, and so at this point, when you were asked to sign this faith statement, you were already accepting of gay people. Actually, that's a really good question. Okay. It took me a year. That's awesome. It took me a year. And let me tell you why. So when you're an evangelical, the scripture, which includes both the Old and the New Testament, is literally literal to you. Yes. That's part. Now, that's not a part of every evangelical church, but the evangelical churches that I was a part of, that's what was considered. The scripture is literal. So as literal as the sun in the sky. That's right. As the cat sitting right next to us. But you can imagine me. So I'm an environmental scientist and I also teach biology. So I don't believe in seven day literal creation. Yes. Well, I had found enough theologians that were like, oh, yeah, there's no seven day literal (laughs) creation. Right. And that was written as poetry. Yes. So that happened. Well, then Jonah and the whale. What do you do with Jonah and the whale? Well, (laughs) you're a scientist, right? You're like, what do I do with Jonah and the whale? Well, what if that was allegory? Right. That when Jonah wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, that God put him aside in a holding tank until he was ready to listen and do what he was supposed to be doing. Yes. So I started talking to my Jewish friends, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's totally what that story and, is and about. And the whale was really a an internal, a, a, a um, yes. an interior experience. Right. And right. so my Jewish friends, who <laughs> are part of the Old Testament tradition— would tell you that's what that story is about. Right. My evangelical friends would say, oh, no, he was in a whale. Like, really? For a long time. I... <laughs> <laughs> right? So so I had already had these, like, is scripture really literal times? So with homosexuality, you've got the apostle Paul, who is the only person in the New Testament who's really spoken about homosexuality. Yes. And so when the question came up, I had to sit there and go, do I still take this book apostle paul's books literally or was there some place in there that this was historical or that it was allegory or it was poetic or 
all of these different pieces. When does that crossover happen from yes. allegory or interior truth yeah. or culturally bound yeah. mandate into absolute law, in right. other words? And so I began asking my evangelical friends, well, Apostle Paul also told me as a woman that I should only have long dresses on and long sleeves on and I should be wearing a head covering. And none of us are doing that. Right. Good point. And so (laughs) was it historical, those things? And they would all say, of course. Why would we ever do that? It's like, well, he tells us to. Mm -hmm. Just like he tells us that we cannot be practicing homosexuals. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? And so so I that opened up my world to, well, maybe what the Apostle Paul was saying was something that was cultural. And so I began looking at different faith traditions. So Presbyterians, Baptists, um, I looked a lot at Episcopalians, Quakers, and I started saying, what are they saying about homosexuality? Greek Orthodox, Catholic. Yes. And I found out that there was a real spectrum. Oh, yes. And in the evangelical church, it's like, no, this is... This is, you cannot be a practicing homosexual. You can believe that you're born homosexual, but then we're going to kind of clear up your mind because you're wrong. Like yes. you're not in God's will yes. with that. It's part of your sin nature, mm-hmm. but you could never live it out. Right. Right? Right. And I just kind of began to go like, okay, well, what are these other churches besides evangelical saying? Because I wasn't ready to let go of my faith, my Christian faith, because it's import- it's been important to me. But I was willing to go, well, maybe I'm not evangelical. I hate I hated saying that at first. Mm. Like I actually started writing letters like C.S. Lewis's letters where he writes letters like to these fictitious people. So I started writing these letters to myself called Dear Evangelical. <laughs> like, like, and working this stuff out in my mind. And one of the things I came to was, one, this historical context. And I started thinking reading about homosexuality during Paul's time and there was a lot of rape culture then and there was a lot of culture of older men with younger men that were not consenting exactly and it was an undeniably patriarchal society that's right yeah and it was about having power over people yes and I thought Man, doesn't that sound like something God would not be okay with, is us having power over people and hurting them. Exactly. So in my mind, when I read the Apostle Paul with homosexuality, that's what he's meaning within his cultural context. He's not meaning my two neighbors across the street who are both lesbians, who have this beautiful family together. And an egalitarian relationship. Yes. One that is not built on abuse. That's not built on abuse. They adopted two children together or, and it's just like, that looks, that looks like the peace of God to yes. me when I watch them. Yes. And so I think that's part of using your mind, which I feel like is important of being a questioner. It's okay for me to use my mind and piece through this and go, that doesn't sound like what God would be for is people being abused and love is what sounds like God would be for. And, you know, I, I think what just troubles me so much is the push against that. Mm-hmm. What troubles me is when how I felt for many years, which was looking at gay relationships mm-hmm. that were objectively good, undeniably, objectively yeah. 
healthy and good, enriching to the people involved and to society as a whole, and still being asked to say, no, that's not good. And to essentially deny the evidence that I was seeing which bankrupted my mind. Right. Essentially, that's what that did, was it it bankrupted my ability to think critically. Because if I can't look at evidence and say, well, there's evidence, I'm going to incorporate that into my worldview and wrestle with it and question it and so on, then I'm trapped. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly true. And that's the hard part about, in some ways, being an evangelical, is that you, the hard evidence... You will always, faith in God or faith in what the scripture says always will outweigh the hard evidence in front of you. It doesn't matter what the fossil record's saying. Right. It doesn't matter if there's a gay couple in front of you that is very happy and is, they're two educators and they're helping out the world. Right. doesn't matter because what God says in this book that's however long old that was written by hundreds of people. Yes in a totally different time period is what really matters. Yes, and and that ultimately makes us intellectual slaves to institutions Mm -hmm. to determine what is right or wrong for us. So that's really interesting that you say intellectual slave. So I feel like that's what happened to me at the college. So you are a slave. Yeah. You're an absolute slave. And you have to determine, and this is one of the things I said to my husband as I was working through all of this is, if Jesus is, if there really is a second coming where Jesus comes a second time and he walks into my community, what banner do I want over my head? What imaginary thing do I want over my head? Do I want it to be a list of rules of all the things that I believe? Or do I want it to be loves God, loves her neighbors? Exactly. What do I want it to be? Yeah. Um, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to be a slave to the institution. Mm. Now, has there been a grieving process for this? Has there, have you had to grieve the evangelical world and your place in it? Yeah. So when I started writing to myself as Dear Evangelical, I really had hoped that the evangelical community, because nothing that I was writing was mean. It was a lot of questioning. I really had hoped that, because I would post these on my blog, but then they'd also go to Twitter and Facebook and all those places. I kind of had hoped that people in the evangelical community would reach out in some way. Instead, what I got was a lot of combat, mm. which is normal for Facebook, right? So, yes. So a lot of combat. So you outed yourself as kind of a... An, as questioner. As a questioner. Yeah, because I was... As a seeker read... on Facebook. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it was like, dear evangelical, like... You know, how is this going? And um, I wish I was your friend on Facebook. I totally yeah. would have <laughs> yes. and so accepted you. Most of the people that would write me back didn't like the questions. It wasn't that because I really wasn't coming up with the answers back then. I was asking so many questions and they would get so irritated that I was asking the questions. Hmm. And then that makes you a little afraid. You're like. I'm a part of a community where I can't ask questions, right? Absolutely. That's scary. It it it's very scary. Yeah. It's very scary. So and, and it creates a double life. It does. And so I ended up having to have really hard conversations with some people that I was like Facebook acquaintances with, and I basically wrote them emails and said, Please just don't combat me on Facebook about this, you know, like And they were like, well, if you write Dear Evangelical, I'm like, I am writing to like try and understand. And that's when I started grieving was like, I'm never going to fit into this world. 
Yeah. I will never, I will always be a questioner. I've been a questioner since I was probably one years old. Yeah. And I will never fit into this world. And one of the things that kept happening to me is I was told that I wasn't, that I didn't fit into the world. So here I am wanting to be an evangelical. Here I am like wanting to believe all of the, like, not believe every single thing, but I wanted to believe a lot of the things that they said about Christ, that of who he was. So grieving the evangelical church was a process of me going, I am trying to be a part of these people, but part of me being a part of these people is me being myself as well. Exactly. Which is to mean asking questions. But when I ask questions, they don't like it, which means they push me further out to the outsides. So I just kept getting pushed further and further out to the Mm. periphery. And at some point, you know, when conversations with Montreat came up and people would say, well, if you believe that homosexuals should get married, then you're a heretic. I had to say, well, then I guess that's what I am. Yes. And I can't change that. I I could change it, but I really don't want to. Right. And so that grieving has really, I would say it took probably until Thanksgiving this last year. So nine, 10 months of just like, man, I really wanted to be a part of this group of people, Mm -hmm. but they don't want me Mm -hmm. and feeling bad in that. But then all of a sudden something happened where I realized that since leaving leaving those type of churches, I didn't have as much judgment in my day, Mm. which is really interesting. So meaning you were, you were feeling less judgment to others and judgment on me. Yeah. Both. That's Both awesome. and. And what that does to you as a person is really free you to be extremely loving and extremely kind. Absolutely. Because if you're not judging yourself all the time, you're not judging other people all the time, you don't feel judged all the time, you can be very open and yes. very kind and very gracious. And you can say, I'm sorry quickly. Yes. And all the things that are actually the things that God talks about. Mm. I started realizing I was becoming because so you normally go to church on Sunday and you have this sermon and the sermon kind of empowers you and you kind of think about it throughout the week. And then you have your daily devotionals you do. This is classic evangelical life. (laughs) We have daily quiet time. It's normally 10 to 30 minutes. Yeah. The longer the quiet time, the better, but you would never tell anyone about you, it. The more you power up. Right. Because yes. you want to be humble, but really you're feeling good about yourself because you had your quiet time. <laughs> and <laughs> Wednesday night, you might go to some kind of small group or youth group. If you had, if you had a teenager, you'd t- send them to youth group. So this is a, a, a part of your daily life, your daily routine. And that within that, you there is judgment happening because because there's all of these rules and laws and you don't meet up you will never meet up to all those rules and laws and the point of being actually a christian is that you will never meet up to them and that god loves you anyways and he sent his son because he loves you anyways Hmm. but when you get in the evangelical church what happened to me is we say that with our mouths but we don't really believe that because you know, taking my daughter to Christian school, people would say, I can't believe those girls over there have those skinny jeans on. You know, the world can get in here so easily. And I'm thinking, skinny jeans? This is a problem? (laughs) What that reminds me of, I had a professor. So this professor had long hair 
about 10 years ago when he was teaching at this private Christian high school. Mm-hmm. And the uh, headmaster brought our mutual friend into his office and sat down with him and looked him straight in the eyes and said, your hair is causing division in the body of Christ. That's right. <laughs> and and my friend just wanted to, he, he, afterwards he said that he just wanted to look at him and say, so you're telling me that out of the problems that are plaguing the human race right now, my hair is at the right. top of your list. And what he should have said back is your judgment is causing <laughs> yes. problems in the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So my daughter, this brings it back to my daughter and how these things kind of are intertwined because I feel like a lot of life is ecology. So a lot of things has lots of threads that cross mm. over. So my daughter at, at this Christian school that I'm talking about with the skinny jeans, very evangelical school. My daughter would be fine with me sharing this, and she shares this in actually sermons and foster care meetings all over, but she was sexually abused. And Mm. so with that comes a lot of pain and a lot of pain with sexuality. And she was getting ready. um, They were getting ready to have like a winter formal. And with the winter formal, a list of what you could wear to the winter formal came home. And it was like no strapless, no spaghetti straps, nothing that's too short. And this is what it means to be short, this many inches above the knee and, you know, thing after thing. Well, time went on and she got asked to tell her testimony at school. And she said, Mom, I'm thinking about telling my testimony about how I came to love God at school. But those people can't even handle spaghetti straps. So I don't think they could handle my story. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the best line of, hey, we can't even handle spaghetti straps yeah. as evangelicals. We, what we're saying to our neighbors who we're supposed to be loving really well is that God loves you no matter what. Every single day, God loves you. And we can't even handle spaghetti and, straps. And the reality is that those people out, outside of our bubble are, are almost radioactive to us. Yep. And, you know, and that actually touches on, I think, one of the hardest things that I've experienced being gay mm-hmm. in the church. And, you know, just took me a really long time to pin this down and to kind of articulate this pain of being gay in the church. What makes it hurt so much is not that people find that church people find gay people disgusting, but mm-hmm. some do. Right. It isn't that they hate us, though some do. It -hmm. isn't that they fear us, though some do. It is that they can't handle us. Right. It it is Mm -hmm. that my presence, the the reality of people like me, above and beyond whether they love us or not, is corrosive and they just cannot handle that cognitive dissonance. And the end result is that I just felt anathema. I just felt like... I was untouchable because I would watch people try to love me and just fall apart. And then, Mm. and then, and so the message that I learned growing up was that inevitably the message was that I am beyond love. I am beyond care. I'm beyond the church because I just watched the church. I would watch the church just completely fall apart Mm. when the topic of homosexuality comes up. Everything from the Anglican communion, you know, this centuries old (laughs) institution literally falling apart because of people like me right and it isn't because they don't love us it's because they can't handle us and that's almost worse to me i think it is worse it's hugely worse because 
what they that says when you can't handle someone is that there is no belonging that you don't have belonging and one of maslow's needs for all people which are those are basic human needs yes it's like food water shelter belonging yes absolutely so how do we get to self-actualization how do we get to higher enlightenment when we're not even allowing people to belong exactly and when we're not allowing people to ask we're not allowing people to ask so in part of being an evangelical is that we believe that all sin is equal right in theory right in practice there are certain sins that are worse than others because otherwise why wouldn't we say to the men in our churches that when they watch pornography it's wrong right we don't we want to talk about sexuality yeah 50 percent of men in churches watch pornography but we don't you know i have a friend who was going through a divorce and all of her bible study friends said well you can't be so mad at him because he watches porn daily she was saying do you understand how that's ruined our relationship right and they're saying well it's just porn it's like well if but if if we would have said anything else if we would have said that this person's a homosexual, it was like, they've got to stop doing that. Do you, so it's, yeah. you know, I think that's really interesting with sexuality. We're real good at pointing out things that we don't like in someone else that's of a different sexual orientation. But our own sexual orientations, if you're heterosexual, you're just like, well, it's not that big of a deal. So this actually hits on another question that I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and let me just frame this question with my experience where I was Um, briefly in the Catholic Church, and Mm -hmm. I was on the road to conversion in Catholicism. And one of the things that really troubles me about Catholicism is how, uh, and I've, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show, is the child sex abuse scandal, not so much that it happened, although that is troubling enough in in and of itself, but how the church handled it. And that they, these men who were serial predators, essentially over the course of decades, where one priest would abuse hundreds of children over their career, mm-hmm. and the church would know about it, right. all the way up to the Vatican, and then they would just relocate the priest to another parish where they would have access to more children. And every single day, that priest was administering the sacraments and was also abusing children. Now... Here's the problem, though. If you're gay, you can't receive the sacrament. Right. And if you are gay in a healthy relationship, you can't receive the sacrament. If you are a woman, you cannot administer the sacrament. And so they would kick out a nun, an aged nun, devoutly committed to God, and they would excommunicate her. And yet these men who were literally life-destroying predators were given a free pass. And, right. And I see that same pattern in the evangelical world too. I see a pattern of patriarchy. Yep. And and so I'm wondering, my question to you is, is how much do you think, I mean, of course it does, patriarchy plays into it, but, but when you see in the evangelical church people hounding the sins of minorities, is it because they are seen as as less than the white men who run the church and then the the sins of the white men are are forgiven are more easily forgiven yeah because the white men are making the rules the white men are making the rules (laughs) right right so they're the ones that wrote the scripture they're the i mean but they weren't white we can't say that i mean because there were a lot of jewish people that also wrote the scripture but but, they were men (laughs) but they were men and they're the ones that are running the church currently and the 
hard part with that is that they're not going to see their sin as bad as the person next to them. Exactly. And so that's why I'm saying when I started letting go of that kind of evangelical thinking, I actually became much more free and actually much more happy. Yes. So with evangelical world, you would say, well, you're not following God. And I would have to say back, but why do I feel better then? Yes, exactly. Because I believe that in godliness, there is a sense of joy. Yes. And it's the fruits of the spirit that's mentioned in the New Testament. It's like joy, faith, love, hope, like all of these things I'm feeling more of the less judgmental I am towards other people. Right. And I actually feel less judgment as well because I'm not in evangelical communities anymore. Absolutely. Me too. And I actually feel much better. Yeah. And I look 10 years younger. So there you go. Well, you are looking (laughs) fabulous. <laughs> so there's something about that. There's something there's something physical about that. About, about letting go of judgment of others. And moving out from under that oppression. Me, yeah. It's really important. And I want to say one thing about the white men piece because I have been attending a Presbyterian church for yes. the, the last year since through this whole process as a place of actually refuge to begin with. It was a very uh, liberal church. So we have... We have several gay couples that are a part of our church. They're allowed to be members. It, it was a great place for me to go and find refuge. And in that, I found out that there were we have over 50 retired pastors at our church, which is really funny, of a congregation of like 600. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> and many of them were a part of the civil rights movement. That's fantastic. In the South. So here's an example. And I think that's, that is a, a thing that we do sometimes that's wrong in our own minds is we say, well, white men this – some white men that sure so there were white men that were helping in the civil rights movement in the south that's incredible incredible and, i love it and who are you who were religious who were religious and <laughs> and who are you and who are using their privilege to help create greater equality yep and, and to have a just world absolutely i mean it's beautiful and that's really what i encourage straight allies to do mm-hmm. you know i i feel like you know we gays <laughs> we ladies <laughs> I love it. we we can only make so much headway without people of privilege helping us and speaking for us and so you know i i always encourage straight people who support gay people to speak up for us because we really can't do it without you right and so you know that situation that you describe is similar to that it's very similar and i think that's what happened to me with the montreat situation and it's not in the same caliber of the civil rights movement in meaning that people at montreat were not getting beaten and lynched and all those sort of things right but what we were saying is that if you're a homosexual you can't get married you can't have the same rights and you can't be a practicing homosexual those were the things that i was having to sign off on right By me choosing not to sign those things and to saying to my gay friends and to my gay students, I'm going to stand with you, even if that means that I never work here again Mm. and I lose my job, I lose my career of seven years in higher ed, I lose, I feel like I lost my alumni status because I went there for undergrad and grad school before going to Harvard. Right. So for me, I was putting a lot of my life on the line by standing with my gay friends and with my gay students. But what I saw throughout history and actually what I learned at Montreat 
is that's the only time when things change. Yes. Right? The only time when things change is when people come up against the institution and say, that's not right, that's not just, and I'm going to lose to show you. Yes. And so we Mm. see that throughout the civil rights movement. We saw it during the Holocaust, right? Those are all, these are all different times throughout history. And so some of us have to stand up and lose something. And um, it can't just be gay people. Absolutely. That has to be sometimes straight people. And I still, at that moment, I still didn't fully understand how I felt about homosexuality. But of my, course. But my answer needed to be, I don't have to understand. What I know is that I have homosexual friends that tell me that they're homosexual. And I believe them. Yes. And I'm not going to tell them that they are crazy or that they should change their mind. There is no changing their mind. This mm. is who they are. Mm. And so if this is who they are... How do I love them? But not only that, how am I a part of their community? How Mm. do I stand with them when they're telling me this is not fair? Um, And I'm seeing that it's not fair. So I didn't have to fully understand how homosexuality works and if it's scriptural and all those sort of things. I just had to do the right thing. Right. I think that whatever transformation that I that I hope happens in our culture and I think it is happening slowly I think it is too I think it is you know in, in certain pockets of the church I really really think that it's happening a a shift to a to a more for lack of a better term human and egalitarian and mm-hmm. loving and compassionate world mm-hmm. that shift is really predicated that that shift is really built on conversion of heart right like the conversion of heart that you had right and the willingness of ordinary people living ordinary lives to ask really really hard questions and so you know i that that's one reason why i wanted to bring you on because you are a wonderful ordinary person (laughs) yes i totally am and i will can i interrupt you on that yes absolutely i will say to that I have not always done this well, and I'm not even saying that right now I'm doing this well. I'm Mm. actually going to put no judgment on this. But I had a gay friend in college when I was at Montreat as an undergrad Mm -hmm. who came out to me, and I didn't know what to do with it. Mm. So I judged him. Then I went and talked to a couple professors who helped me with even more reasons on why he should change. Right. (laughs) And what came out of that was this person who was really one of my best friends— us no longer being friends anymore mm. and him leaving the church mm. and continuing to be homosexual because that's what he was. Right. I gave him a choice that he really couldn't choose from. Right. And so that was an example of being, I feel like, of, of where I went wrong. Mm. And so I felt like this time I needed to go right. Mm. Sure. So. You um, know, I've, I've just heard so many stories like that. Mm-hmm. So many straight people former evangelicals, former conservatives, where Donald, who is a regular guest on this show, told this story several episodes ago about how uh, when Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, he wrote a letter to the newspaper saying it was the gays' fault. Whoa. And how deeply he now regrets that. And now he's just the most affirming, supportive person. And, you know, that is Mm. not to mitigate the damage done by ideas. Ideas are powerful and ideas are damaging, but it is to illustrate that transformation happens. That's right. And, and, you know, 
As a scientist, I would say evolution happens. Evolution happens. <laughs> Absolutely. We change. We it's change. amazing. <laughs> and it's and it's wonderful. And I'm 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 really deeply encouraged whenever I, I come across people like you and Donald and, and so many people who 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 once believed one thing and now believe another and who accept that things you once said and did hurt people right. and i think that takes a lot of strength and that takes a lot of courage to confront that and then be willing to change and i think that takes yeah. a lot of integrity thank you well so we're coming to the end of our show but where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or read your stuff yeah so i have a blog called ecotheologist.com and um, they can find me on there my email's up on that they can just go to the contact form and um, I write mostly on there about environment and God mm. um, but I I have written a little bit about this experience of becoming what I would call an ex-evangelical or a post-evangelical like we talked about of just kind of moving away from the evangelical church if they're interested in more of that story or journey or if they want to ask me any questions um, I'm happy to field their questions as well. Awesome. And she is a friend of the gays. That's right. So That's right. right? <laughs> if you need a friend. That's right. If you need a friend, call me. Or Ab a glass of wine. Absolutely. <laughs> she will provide both. That's She'll be right. a friend with, with wine. That's right. Um, well, that's it for our show. The music is by Matt Langston, The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. If you really love my work and want to support it, please find me at sbradfordlong.com and you can read my dozens of articles about LGBT issues, faith, and doubt, and whatever strikes my fancy. You can also become a supporter there. You can support me on Patreon. I work on this show for about uh, 10 hours a week on top of my full-time job, and so I'm starting to look kind of like a meth addict but i love it i will keep doing it i will keep providing these shows for free and if you want to help me out that would be great i also have a favor to ask you if you like this show go to itunes or wherever you listen and write a positive review and that would really help me out and i also have to thank my team carson green and justin caleb bryant for keeping me from going insane and helping me out with all the technical stuff, all the technical part of the show. All right, well, that's it. I will see you next week. Bye.